Well, when you think about an important relationship you have, it might be a relationship with uh, your spouse, or it might be, you know, a really good friend. Uh, it might be someone in your family that you're close to. Uh, my guess is that there's some foundational story, some defining moment where it all began. It may or may not have been like the first time that you met, but there's probably something early on in the relationship that kind of set the stage for what this relationship was going to be like. So when I met Erin, my wife, um, we were at Elgin Community College, good old ECC, and we were both in transition. We had left our four-year schools and we were at Elgin Community College uh, before we went to finish undergrad at other places. That's another story, you know, too long, I won't tell it now. But we met at the one Christian club on campus. And, you know, I had met Aaron a few times and we had kind of interacted uh, at that club. And I was definitely interested in her. Uh, but we hadn't really, like, hung out, you know, like just the two of us. And so I remember there was one night when, you know, our gathering was happening on campus, and I overheard Aaron say uh, that she needed to ride home. And so not being too overly eager, uh, you know, I, I went over and was like, oh, you know, I'd be more than happy to give you a ride home. And she agreed, and, you know, so anyways, the meeting ends, and we're leaving the building, and we're in the parking lot, and we're, we're walking to the car, and this may not seem important to anyone else, but for me, I was thinking, what music am I going to play? Like, am I going to play just, am I going to turn on the radio? Am I going to play some non-offensive, just crowd-pleasing pop music mix? Or am I going to put on jazz music? Some of you know that I am like a jazz nut. I started college as a jazz performance major. I love jazz. And so we're walking to the car, and I say, uh, I, I thought maybe we'd, you know, I put on some jazz, and she said, oh, I like jazz, and their friends, a love story began. Um, about a couple months after that, we were in the car, we were listening to Ella Fitzgerald, and we had our uh, define the relationship talk, you know, like, what is this that we're doing? Like, are we just, like, friends? Are, are we, like, dating? What, what, what is this relationship going to be? Uh, about a year and a half after that, we had our first dance as a married couple to the jazz standard Embraceable You, sung by Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, we lived on the East Coast for about uh, 10 years, and during that time we went to jazz clubs in New York City and Philadelphia. Since being back to Chicago, we've been to the Jazz Showcase, taken our kids to the Jazz Showcase, been to Symphony Center to see jazz. If we're in the car, we're listening to jazz. If we're at home listening to music, it's jazz. It's important to our relationship. Um, when you consider the story of the Bible and the story of God's relationship with his people, that defining moment was the Exodus. The defining event for Israel in their relationship with the Lord was the Exodus. And you could almost put it this way, from that moment on, the music of the Exodus was in the air. The Exodus is the gospel event of the Old Testament. Just like the death and resurrection of Jesus is absolutely central to understanding Anything that the New Testament, or really the Bible, says, the Old Testament cannot be understood apart from 
the Exodus. Because the Exodus was not just this random thing that God decided to do this one time, but it was the event that told Israel who their God was and who they were. It was, in that sense, always relevant. At every point in Israel's history, it was important for them to remember the Exodus, to believe in the God of the Exodus. We began this series in the Psalms about a month ago, and we started with Psalm 113, the Psalm right before this one. And that Psalm talked about how God is infinitely great. He is, he is the creator who transcends this creation, but yet he's also the God who is mercifully near. And Psalm 114, following on the heels of that, holds up the Exodus as really the main event, the perfect example of God's infinite greatness and his merciful nearness in the Exodus. And so, as we've been talking about this, this way of wonder, this way of life that God means for us to live, a way of life that's characterized by deep awe and love and joy in who God is, if we're going to do that, the Bible would say we have to think about and consider the Exodus. So, what I want us to do this morning, I want you to uh, kind of step with me into the Old Testament And I want us to think about Psalm 114 and how God wants his people to remember the Exodus. So how does Psalm 114 want us to remember the Exodus? Let's look at the text. If you have it in front of you, that would be really helpful because we're going to just work right through it. Verse 1. When Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people who spoke a foreign language. What are we to remember? Remember, Israel, that your people were originally small and not important. There were 70 or so of you of the household of Jacob. You were an alien people, strangers. And what did God do when he brought you out of Egypt? Verse 2, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. Remember, God brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. He redeemed you, but he didn't just redeem you and then just leave you to yourself. He redeemed you, and then he made you his dwelling place. He made you his sanctuary. He said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will take you as my own. And then he made you his dominion. Meaning he made you the people who would manifest his reign and his rule and his kingdom. He took you, a rather insignificant group of strangers living as slaves in a foreign land, and he made you to be the showcase of his kingdom. Exodus 19, verse 6, God says to his people, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Which is a way of saying that it's going to be through you that the nations are going to come to understand who I am, what kind of God I am. So I've not just freed you from slavery, but I've freed you and I dwell with you. And not only that, but I've given you the dignity and the honor of manifesting what my kingdom looks like and what I am like. And what is the result of God's identification with his people like this? Verse 3 and 4. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. So in verse 3, 
the reference to the sea in the first half of the verse, and then you see another reference to the Jordan in the second half. These are referring to the two crossings of water, one that happens at the beginning of redemption at the Red Sea when Israel leaves Egypt, but the other one is after the years in the wilderness in Joshua chapter 3 and 4 when they cross the Jordan and they come into the promised land. What's kind of interesting is if you look at Exodus 14, which is the historical account of the, uh, the Red Sea event, it's actually the Egyptians that the text talked about who are terrified and flee. Because there's that moment, if you remember the story, where the Egyptians follow Israel into the dry land where the water's on both sides and they follow and then God throws their forces into panic and the Egyptians realize what's going on and that God is for Israel and they say, we got to get out of here, we got to flee. But it's like Psalm 114 is saying something like this, before the Egyptians realized what was going on and that they were in trouble and they needed to flee, the sea had already fled. And then verses 5 and 6. They repeat 3 and 4, but in Hebrew, the verb tense changes. And so what it's doing is something like this. If verses 3 and 4 are kind of, you know, like a past event that you're remembering, verses 5 and 6 seek to kind of lift you and put you in the original event. So it's like you're there and you're watching what's happening. It'd be probably better to put it in the present tense. And if you notice, it, the psalm talks to the sea and the mountains and the hills. And if when you heard this read, or as you were kind of reading it in your mind just now, you hear attitude, that is correct. This is like ancient Near Eastern trash talking. The writer is taunting these seemingly powerful and even like immovable things. Verse 5 literally begins like this. What to you see? Which is, you know, like a modern version of what's up? What's up, see? What's up, see? You running? Are you scared? What's up, mountains? You skipping away like lambs? I thought you were immovable. I thought you were sturdy and permanent. That's right, hills, get going. Dance off like little lambs. The psalm is putting you there in that original event, and it's seeking to help you see, look at how creation responds to the presence of your God. Verse 7, tremble, earth, at the presence of the Lord at the presence of the God of Jacob. What does God have to do for these things to occur? Does God have to say anything? Does he have to give a look? Does he have to flex a muscle? No. Just his presence. The presence of your God. Your God, verse 8, who turned the rock into a pool of water the flint into a spring of water. This happens twice, uh, at least twice, actually. I'm, I'm, Exodus 17, I think it's Numbers chapter 20. And the text is reminding us, reminding God's people, this is the God who provided for you 
when it seemed impossible. You were in a desert and you were thirsty and there was no water. And then he caused water to come out of a rock. This is who your God is. And this is always relevant. Like whatever point in history God's people find themselves, whatever point in your life you find yourself, this is always relevant. Are you going to believe in the God of the Exodus? Are you going to take seriously who he's shown himself to be? And what happens? What happens if you don't? What happens when you forget this? What happens when you forget, verse 7, that, that the earth trembles at the presence of God and that this God made you his dwelling? Well, you probably are afraid. You live controlled by fear, constantly trying to mitigate the things that could, could hurt you, that you're protecting yourself because maybe God isn't for me or maybe he's really not that powerful or he can't protect me or he's not really in control or he's not good. And we see this exact thing happen when the spies go in to survey the land and its inhabitants in the book of Numbers and the majority of the spies come back and they say, you should see how big these people are, right? And how their cities are like fortified and they have these big, tall walls. We can't take it. We can't go in. And it's like everything from the Exodus is somehow irrelevant. Like, do you remember what God did to the Egyptians? Do you remember what the sea did? No. And so you can't obey you can't listen. You can't trust God. What else happens when you forget? Well, it, it affects how you interpret your story, your life. Something goes wrong. Some, something that was unexpected comes into your life. And all of a sudden, God is not good. Or maybe God's word isn't true. Or maybe God isn't real. What, what does Israel say? Multiple times, God has brought us into the wilderness to kill us. How, how did you get that interpretation? Like, wh where on earth did that come from? Hasn't this God shown you that he is faithful and that he is good? Hasn't he made that clear? Or this one, this is maybe my favorite. Let's elect a leader to go back to Egypt I bet Egypt would take us back as slaves. Oh, oh, do you remember? Do you remember how good the food was in slavery? Slavery was the best. <laughs> but, but you were slaves. Did you forget what it was like to be a slave? Do you forget the pain and the toil and the dehumanization? Do you forget what they were doing to you and your children? And yet, I think we could say every time we intentionally choose to just walk right into sin, we're, we're, just, we're living that same story again. Praising the God of the Exodus is always relevant. You know, just take the book of Deuteronomy, which constantly calls God's people to remember their story, to remember the Exodus, to remember the wilderness wanderings, to remember God's faithfulness during that whole time. Why is that important? 
because Deuteronomy 5, remembering the Exodus is foundational to understanding God's law and having any motivation to do it. You need to know the gospel and you need to know the deliverance that God has given to be empowered to do the law. Or Deuteronomy 7.18, you must remember the Exodus so that you're not afraid of the people and the groups that surround you when you feel like you are little in comparison to them. Or Deuteronomy 8.2, you must remember how God kept you and preserved you and was faithful to you all those years so that you don't come into the land and you just turn to idolatry. You just look for anything that will give you a promise of security and bank on that. Or Deuteronomy 8.18, you must remember so that you don't think it's because of your power that you have all of this stuff, that you forget God's grace. Or Deuteronomy 9.7, which kind of says a similar thing, only remember in the wilderness your stubbornness. Remember your hard hearts. So that when you come into the land, you never think that it was because you were so righteous, because you're so great and awesome that God is doing this. It's because of his grace. Or Deuteronomy 15, 15, 24, 18, 24, 22, and a host of others. Remember the Exodus. You have to remember it if you're going to seek to do justice in society, if you are going to care for the poor, if you are going to care for the vulnerable, for the widow, for the orphan, for the alien, for the fatherless. The God of the Exodus is always relevant. But one of the tragedies, obviously, in, in Israel's story, if you're familiar with their story, is they forget. They don't remember. They stop praising the God of the Exodus. They forget who they are. They forget who their God is. They forget who, what their calling is. And they end up in exile. They end up conquered by foreign nations. They end up being taken from their land just like God promised would happen if they should forsake him and if they should pervert justice and if they should sin against him by going after other gods. And what is their hope then? I remember uh, when Aaron and I were in seminary, we were taking a marriage counseling class. And one of the things that we talked about was, uh, you know, you're doing counseling with a couple, and this couple comes in, and it's like a grenade has gone off in their marriage, in their relationship. There's like shrapnel everywhere. Everything is just painful and broken, and it's messy. And it, what do you do? And I remember one of the things that we talked about was, you know, is there something early on in their relationship? Can you learn something about their story in that first session? And is there a place where early on there was perhaps one of those like defining moments? There was a shared vision for life. There was something that you can kind of link back to to give a sense of perspective in the mess and the chaos to say there's a way forward. We're going to move in this way. And in the midst of exile, Israel's hope, as you see again and again and again in the prophets, is the God of the Exodus. The prophets begin speaking of this hope that God is going to do a second Exodus, that he is the God of the Exodus, and so once again, he's going to bring his people out. He's going to draw them to himself. He's going to make them his dwelling. He's going to restore them. And one just such place in Scripture is the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 55, 
in numerous places speak of God's redemption and restoration of the people as like a second exodus he's going to bring about. And if you are here this morning as a believer in Jesus, this, this story is your story. Because when we turn to the New Testament, we see the Gospels presenting Jesus to us as the one who is going to bring about this ultimate exodus. And so Mark chapter 1 begins by quoting Isaiah chapter 40. And Luke begins by quoting and alluding to Isaiah all over the place. And Matthew begins with this genealogy showing that Jesus has come to bring an end to the exile. The New Testament Gospels show us place after place Here is your God, the God of the Exodus, the God who's now come in flesh to deliver his people. And in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 and following, this is Luke's account of the transfiguration, that moment where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up to a mountain and pray. And as Jesus prays, his appearance is changed, and the three disciples see the glory of Christ And Jesus is then speaking with Moses and Elijah, and Luke 9.31 tells us that Moses and Elijah are speaking to Jesus about his exodus, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. And what all of this means is that the ultimate exodus that the prophets had spoken of was finally coming true in and through Jesus, that through this exodus, God was going to deliver his people from the ultimate slavery, from their slavery to sin and death, and that by the sacrifice of Christ, God was going to ransom and redeem his people By the death of Jesus, he would break the power of sin and the power of condemnation. And by the resurrection of Jesus, he would break the power of death. And once again, we see that God doesn't just redeem his people and then leave them to himself, but he redeems them and then he indwells them by his spirit. And then he doesn't only do that, but he makes them a manifestation of his kingdom. 1 Peter 2.9 calls Christians a royal priesthood echoing that language of Exodus 19. And again, here's the point. If you are a believer in Jesus, this is your story. And this is why, for example, Paul will write to this largely Gentile church in Corinth, and in 1 Corinthians 10, he's going re- to talk about the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings, and he's going to write to them, these things happened to them, the Israelites, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Like, this is your story. When you think about Israel and whether they're remembering or they're not remembering the Exodus and what they're doing with the gospel event, and you watch them not trust the Lord, and and you watch them go after idols, those are warnings to us. But on on a more, like, positive note, I think of, for example, the book of Ephesians, Where chapter 1, Paul says again and again that it is through being united to Christ that we have all the things that we have, that, that we are saved, that we are adopted, that we are redeemed. And then Paul says in Ephesians 1, 17 and following, he prays. And the gist of his prayer is, I am praying that you would realize God's power for you. God's power which is for you, the power of 
resurrection and ascension power. Let me just read that. Paul prays, 117 and following, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. You are redeemed. You are indwelt. You are made to be a manifestation of the kingdom. His power is for you. Paul prays that we would know that. Why does that matter? He says throughout the rest of Ephesians and his letters, you have to know this so that you have the power to love. You have to know this so that you have the power to do the hard work of community and the power to forgive and bear with others so that you have the power to stand firm so that you have the power to endure and to keep going so that you have the power to change and to grow so that you have the power to participate in God's mission. Or Ephesians 3, let me end with this, that you have the power by God's Spirit working in you that your life would be rooted and grounded in love. Where this morning do you come into this place and you realize there are places of my life and my story that are not informed by the love of Jesus? They're not rooted and grounded in love. They're rooted and grounded in fear or in sadness, or in disappointment, or in something else. It's not rooted and grounded in love. Paul prays that you would know what is the height and the depth and the width and the far reaches of the love of Christ for you. This is our God, the God of the Exodus, the God who redeems, who indwells, who manifests his rule through us, the creator and sovereign Lord whose power is for you in and through Jesus.